This is a podcast by The Straits Times and Money FM 89.3. Hello and welcome to The Letter from the Bureau, a special series which is part of The Straits Times Asian Insider podcast channel. I'm your host, ST's foreign editor, Bhagyashri Gareka. Now, the letter from the Bureau is meant to be like a scenic detour from the raging news of the day. We talk about life as it goes on amid all the crises that break around us. I chat each month with one of ST's 30-odd correspondents in 15 cities across the Asia-Pacific, the United States, and Europe. And they share with you interesting trends and events unfolding in their countries. In our 13th episode, we are speaking with ST's China correspondent, Elizabeth Law. It's good to have you on the show, Liz. Hi, Bhagya. Thanks for having me. Now, Liz, China just made headlines in the last week of June by making large cutbacks in the quarantine policies that they have for travelers. And you were in Shanghai for a spell and then you flew out to Chongqing just last week. So what were your thoughts when you heard the announcement? Well, actually, you should perhaps tell us why you were in Shanghai in the first place, because you normally work out of our Beijing office. So um, I was in Shanghai because I had flown back to Singapore for my first visit home in more than two years. Uh, and even though uh, there are flights into China, there are still no direct flights between Singapore and Beijing since March 2020. Uh, so one of the few options that we had, that a ticket that I already had was uh, to Shanghai. Uh, the other options were, of course, Chongqing and Xiamen. Uh, but at the time, of course, tickets are either not available to us or astronomically expensive, for instance, um, and you are familiar with this, that the Xiamen airline ticket was 17000 Singapore dollars for one way, when it usually costs about 2000 uh, So even though Shanghai was still in the midst of a lockdown, uh, when I came back in late May, we decided to go ahead with it anyway, thinking that after quarantine, Shanghai should be reopened because it announced that it would reopen on June 1st and things would be back to normal. Well, of course, Things did not pan out as expected. I was tested positive for COVID-19 the moment I landed at Shanghai Pudong Airport, uh, which resulted in a lengthy hospital stay and isolation, even though my only symptom was a sore throat. So Liz, you are fully recovered now. I am fully recovered. It's been six weeks now. Okay, good to know that. Good to know that. But you, but you hung on there longer than you expected to. Yes, because after uh, 12 days in hospital, I had to spend another seven days in isolation in a government-designated hotel uh, before I was released into public in Shanghai. But because of existing COVID regulations, because Shanghai was considered a medium-risk area, I was still not allowed back into Beijing. And that took a while to become clear. Uh, and so last weekend, I flew into Chongqing to wait out two weeks so that the Shanghai travel history no longer shows up on my tracking app, uh, which will then hopefully let Beijing allow me to return. So just yesterday, when the China came out with their new policies, what struck you having gone through this experience in you know Shanghai? Yeah, I mean, for a lot of people that I've spoken to here, a lot of uh, foreigners, you know, the one thing that holds them back from actually going home on visits has actually been the lengthy quarantine. And uh, it's also, even though business travelers may be allowed to get special government issued letters or visas to come in to visit, but they always are just, you know, uh, turned off actually by quarantine because 14 days and another seven days, 21 days is three weeks 
weeks gone just being alone in a hotel room, it, it can be very intimidating. So the fact that it's now seven days plus three days, no matter where you enter China from, uh, I think it's it's very welcome news. And hopefully the number of flights uh, will increase as well. And we will see more people returning to China. So what do you think? is the motivation behind this decision i mean i think we no one really expected it to happen of course china you know was kind of celebrating the fact that shanghai and beijing have had cases in single digits or uh, zero on some days so you know there was that movement towards back being back to normal schools being allowed to open and so on but but what's your reading on what's the motivation why did china decide to act now I think it's it's not just about the quarantine, but because this update of the entire uh, COVID policy also now has a country, a nationwide standard on what exactly would be considered a low risk, medium risk and high risk areas. Because uh, one problem that China had was that a lot of cities, provinces or even counties were arbitrarily increasing the number of days quarantines require, or just arbitrarily uh, imposing their own rules on travelers trying to enter or leave their area because local governments were just terrified of a new COVID outbreak happening under their charge, which means that they would be responsible. And that led to essentially the economy uh, really, really suffering. You can, When you look at GDP figures, you look at consumer figures, especially numbers are just really, really low. It's sluggish. People are worried to even go on holidays because you don't know when you're going to be caught in a lockdown somewhere else, or you might be subjected to some sort of strange COVID measure, COVID prevention measure that was not even officially announced. So this was a means of the Chinese government trying to, you know, get their house slightly in order as well. And to have a more unified policy across the country. Uh, does this mean that they're giving up on zero COVID? I absolutely not. But it is just it's a way, I think, in, in terms of catching up with the rest of the world as well, because the virus that we have now, as opposed to the virus that we were seeing when they first came up with these sort of lengthy quarantine measures, it's mutated a lot in the last two years. Right. So the fear of growth slowing down and, uh, you know, consumer confidence weakening. So those were possibly the reasons then for China to uh, take a more relaxed stance on, on travel, at least. So would you say then that uh, we can expect in coming weeks and days uh, more international flights to resume, you know, more moves towards opening up the borders, let the tourists in, let the investors, let the expats come back in. So is that in the offering? I don't think we can expect it so soon, uh, hopefully by early next year. Uh, but one thing that we have to be very clear, because uh, the Chinese government had actually announced that they were going to cancel their hosting of the Asian Cup, which is next year, because they felt like they could not have a sufficiently safe environment for this tournament to take place. So it gives an indication that they don't think that they will be ready to fully open at least until spring next year. So, you know, I, I was thinking that when we hear China and COVID, uh, the next words we think of are the zero COVID policy. And you mentioned briefly that you don't think that this is a sign that China is giving up on that zero COVID kind of approach, uh, which of course is yeah where China is at, while the rest of the world has more or less switched to recognizing COVID as an endemic disease. But for China, in the scale of things, how big are the changes that were just announced? This is the first time they've updated the code, well, the, the policy in 13 months. 
So 13 months ago, this was May 2020. This is a very different virus that we're looking at. It was very serious. We, Wuhan had just come out from under lockdown and, you know, various cities were still grappling with ways to try and deal with this virus. So for them to update it, it shows that they're now accepting that what we are seeing now is very different from what it used to be. And in a way, it's them catching up the world. But whether or not they are ready to live with the virus as endemic and whether or not they will give up on zero COVID, I can I can tell you, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. Uh, simply because of the fact that this has become uh, somewhat politicized every time scientists bring up the fact of uh, zero COVID or, you know, tr- uh, trying to live with the virus, they get shut down online and it has become very, very sensitive. Like, for instance, last year, a very prominent doctor was based in Shanghai, Dr. Zhang Wenhong. When he suggested it, he was shut down by this very angry online mob and uh, subsequently someone reported him for plagiarizing his PhD. And the same thing happened a couple of months later when the head of the CDC, George Gao, gave an interview with a Chinese media outlet you know, talking about whether China was ready for living with COVID-19. He made a lot of caveats and he actually told the media outlet, like, look, you have to post the entire clip of my response online because I don't want this angry online mob to come after me. So that is the sort of climate now whenever people talk about living with the virus. And you know, whenever people hear that I'm from Singapore, they're like, oh, you guys have basically Tangping already, haven't you? Uh, Tangping basically means to lie flat or to give up. But then, you know, we have to explain that, you see, no, uh, we have decided to coexist with the virus because that is what works for us as a country. And China, if you have decided that, yes, you are going to go for the zero number because you are able to sustain it, then great, that is what works for you. But we do what works for us. And and I remember a flutter just a day or two ago when there was this report in Beijing Daily that seems to have misleadingly reported that, you know, China or Beijing could be sticking to very strict policies for as many as five years. And then they walk back on that. And of course, that, that, that caused a lot of panic. Yeah. And then it so happened that the new guidelines then, then came out. This podcast is available on our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Like us and rate us. And now back to our podcast episode. Now, let's get back to my conversation with ST's China correspondent, Elizabeth Law. Tell us a bit more about what your Shanghai experience was like. And um, as you look back on it, what more does it tell you about this country that you've been now writing about for um, two and a half years for The Straits Times? You know, I think we've talked about this before, but again, I said that one thing that has struck me about the virus, uh, China's dealing with this virus, is that, you know, it still surprises you at every turn. This is a country that you would often look at it and say, okay, you know, policies are moving in certain directions. Logically, other countries are moving in a similar direction as well. This is what we think will happen. So, for instance, zero COVID. And we thought that, yeah, as you know, as people are starting to treat it as endemic, maybe China it would go that way too because it is such an important note in the global supply chain. It is important to the global economy. But what we instead see are authorities doubling, tripling and even quadrupling down, you know, just to stick to this policy that came about at the very, very beginning that that many countries, uh, Singapore included, had in fa- had started out with but are now have decided to go another in another direction for uh, social concerns, for economic concerns. And Earlier, you mentioned the reaction to when it was misreported about Beijing sticking to these harsh policies for the next five years. The sort of reaction and the sort of blowback from, 
you know, local Chinese people, it also gives you an indication that people are tired of this and they want an end to it soon. Right. So, of course, you reported on COVID right from the start of the pandemic, Liz. I remember you were in Wuhan, uh, you know, right in that market, the wholesale food market where it all began. And then you were back in Wuhan again after, I think, three months when, when they ended their harsh lockdown. And then you talked about how life was going back to normal slowly. Then you've seen Shanghai and you've shared some observations of what it was like in lockdown. You've experienced the Beijing lockdown. But then this, you say you're hesitant, I noticed, to call, call this like a start of a new phase. Why is that? It is some, in some ways, it is a slight change of policy, but I don't feel like it is a new phase in a sense that maybe I'm being conservative about it. You know, maybe I feel like uh, we, sh- we, we, should, we, we shouldn't jump the gut because at the end of the day as well, while central decides the policies, like as with a lot of things in China, central might decide on something and, then, you know, it's, it's all well and good. But when it trickles down towards the provinces, towards cities, towards uh, the county level, it is the implementation at the local level that is actually extremely difficult. Don't forget, this is a country which, because of the zero COVID policy, and as I mentioned earlier, government officials are still terrified of, you know, having an outbreak under their watch, which means that their jobs are on the line. And, you know, when your job is on the line, you would do anything it takes. One political scientist I spoke to called this strategic disobedience. So you would even... you may not fully implement policies if you feel that it may put your job at risk. So how this actually rolls out over the coming weeks, how it trickles down at the local level, I think that is very important. And when we can see clearly what is happening at that local level, then I think I would be a bit more confident to say that, yes, this country has reached a turning point. Because it's not just about what Central wants and what Central has announced, but it's also the mentality amongst the people. So this strategic disobedience phenomena and Beijing being far away, yeah, so those seem to be weighing heavily on you. But the good news is that Beijing and Shanghai, the outbreaks seem to have pretty much subsided, at least going by the past few days. Uh, There have been days when they had zero cases. There have been single digit cases. So uh, all those stories and, you know, and and we reported them too about, you know, emerging from uh, Shanghai and Beijing in the middle of lockdowns when food was running short, when I think people had difficulty accessing hospital services and so on. Do you think those things will soon be forgotten as, you know, better days start to appear? Well, you know, when uh, when I came out of isolation and I entered a reopened Shanghai, you could still feel, you know, people were almost in a dreamlike state. And they, they are still very, very traumatized but by what had happened to them. Um, I think the whole idea that in this day and age that you could be put under lockdown when the government had explicitly said days before that no lockdown would happen. And then after that, this lockdown that continues indefinitely, number one. And secondly, the fact that people were fighting for food. There was, they, it came to a point where some people were starving because they didn't know when government rations were coming. They, were, they weren't able to buy their own things. And as well as, you know, there's these stories and reports of people getting dragged away at night because they tested positive or considered a close contact, including the elderly. So they were dragged away at night to, take, to be taken into centralized quarantine and then come back to their homes weekly later to find things, their property, their own private property has been destroyed by you know, strong disinfection chemicals. This sort of thing, people find it very hard to square that it would still happen in this day and age in 2022. And I think that is a trauma that would take a while to go away. 
I, I don't think the lockdown in Beijing has been as bad, but similarly in Wuhan, in Xi'an at the end of last year, where, you know, people also ran out of food and there were stories about how a pregnant woman miscarried because she was turned away for not having the requisite PCR test. You know, stories, stories like that, people get very emotional. People get very angry and very upset uh, when it happens. But at the same time, I think the public also sometimes has a short memory. Perhaps it's a coping mechanism. Perhaps it's a way to try and move on. But whenever you talk to people in Wuhan, they no longer talk about what happened then as much, but rather, you know, how they've bounced back from it. So it remains to be seen. In a way, that really is a good thing and, you know, a good thing for, like you say, a coping mechanism. So I think that has its place for sure. Uh, now, you mentioned this, Liz, a little earlier that this is an important year politically for China because they're going to be holding this very important party congress, which is when the Communist Party basically gets together and makes important decisions. And President Xi Jinping is very likely going to be assuming an unprecedented third term in office. What about the other leaders, you know, especially from Shanghai and Beijing? Do you think that because of the way the outbreak played out, they are likely to suffer consequences? They may not get to the high ranks in the party hierarchy? <laughs> That's actually a lot of tea leaf reading. Uh, so we don't know until we know, right? But I mean, logically... Let's go with the easy one first. So uh, the easy one would be Chai Qi, who is the party secretary of Beijing. Now, he looks safe because he was also involved in the planning and the running of the Winter Olympics. And that was, I mean, by all accounts, fairly successful if you look at Chinese media, of course. Uh, now, on to Li Qiang, who is the party secretary of Shanghai. Of course, uh, Everyone was kind of worried about where he was going to go and whether or not the impact uh, of what happened in Shanghai was now going to take him out of the running. But at the end of the day, uh, Li Chang is someone who is very close to President Xi, is personally knows him very well. And let's not forget that last weekend on Saturday, uh, during the Shanghai Party Congress, uh, Li Chang himself uh, struck a very jubilant tone and he declared that Shanghai has now won the battle against COVID. So, and uh, shortly after that, of course, he was re-elected a ceremonial manner as a party secretary of uh, Shanghai, which, you know, kind of confirms uh, what we know that he probably is going to be okay. But as I said, as with all things here, you don't know until you know. So until we see after the meeting, when all of the members of the Politburo Standing Committee walk out of the room and stand in front of the media for that all-important picture, we don't know until we know. Right. And on that note, Liz, thank you. This was a great session. Thank you for having me, Bhagya. And with that, we come to the end of this session of Letter from the Bureau. We hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to read Liz's column, we have a link for you in our podcast description box. You will also find there a link to other stories in our Letter from the Bureau series. The Asian Insider Podcast channel is also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Like us and rate us. Thank you.